0: a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hello, everybody. Today's episode of Other People is sponsored by the Pygmalion Literary Festival, taking place in various bars throughout downtown Champaign and Urbana, Illinois, on September 27th and 28th, 2013, The Pygmalion Literary Festival will feature an eclectic lineup of emerging and established authors, many of whom have appeared right here on this program. This year's headliners include Dan Sean, Amelia Gray, Matt Bell, Roxanne Gay, and James Greer, who will be joined by Kyle Miner, Lindsay Hunter, Kathleen Rooney, and many more. And what else, you ask? Well, since the Pygmalion Lit Fest is a collaboration... Between Ninth Letter, Hobart, Another Literary Journal, and the Pygmalion Music Festival, folks who attend this year will be able to experience a great lineup of musicians like Major Lazer, Dawes, The Breeders, Kurt Vile and The Violators, and The Head and the Heart. Catch the beginning of Kurt Weil's set after hearing Matt Bell and Roxanne Gay read together. Kill Time, in between Amelia Gray's reading and The Breeders' set, By checking out the Pygmalion Book Fair That's right, there's going to be a book fair too Or get amped up for Major Laser By experiencing what happens when Lindsay Hunter Aaron Birch and Elizabeth Ellen read together If this sounds like fun to you, which it should You can learn more at PygmalionLitFest.com There you can find the full lit and music lineups uh, That are posted along with other important details. That's PygmalionLitFest.com This is a literary and music festival slash extravaganza. You can attend it. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people.
1: You and I have a friend in common.
0: Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done.
1: I think it's really beautiful did what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now
0: here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Oh, right. <laughs> All right, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is talking. This is listening. Thank you for being here. I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles, and it is currently extremely hot. Can you hear it in my voice? Can you hear the fatigue? Uh, I'm going to start out with some mail. As many of you know, I've been posting uh, letters, emails from listeners uh, over on the show's website, otherpeoplepod.com, and I'm going to continue to do that from time to time. Uh, the column is called Listener Feedback. If you go looking for it, but I've been getting so much mail uh, lately, and some you know increasingly interesting and strange mail. Uh, So I figure I should just share it on the show itself. It makes sense. I like hearing from you guys. And I like uh, having some sort of dialogue with the listenership. So, and you know, these letters, it doesn't necessarily have to be a critique of the show or a response to a particular moment in a particular episode. It could just be uh, you telling me what is going on in your world or in your brain. So uh, with this in mind, I'll read you a couple uh, recent emails that I got that sort of surprised me and seemed uh, fascinating. So if anyone out there wants to uh, email me, the address is letters at otherpeoplepod.com. Uh, Otherwise, here is a letter from a guy named Arthur who writes, Dear Brad, I was running late to work the other day. I don't have a job exactly, but I felt late anyway. The way I always feel late when I accidentally take a trip through the Whole Foods parking lot and forget I'm not supposed to talk to the people with the clipboards who always make me feel awful and dirty for not having washed my hair lately or for not having microdermed." my skin with any kind of special exfoliant at all so the other day this woman stopped me I was feeling late again and she said excuse me sir would you care to save a young girl's life today the two of us locked eyes for a moment too long me and this eager young woman with perfect skin this eager perfect young woman smiling with teeth no thanks, I said. I already did. In that moment, I swear to you, Brad Listy, I felt this woman's soul being sucked into my body, her clipboard and all. I told myself I no longer needed that special quinoa cleanse and that maybe never again would I need to buy my customary rare-trade Sherpa goat cheese spread with apricot that I used to like. Not even a glass of kombucha could have made me feel so perfectly on time. Yours, Arthur. So, uh, that's interesting. Is there such a thing as a quinoa cleanse? And uh, I'm worried about Arthur not washing his hair. I want you to... I want my listeners to be clean. (laughs) And I feel like the uh, solicitors at Whole Foods, I feel like that's a thing. They're always out there. Uh, You know at least here in Los Angeles There are always people out there in front with clipboards Like what is that That must be sanctioned By Whole Foods I find that taxing Personally On a certain level And yet at the same time I find myself moved uh, By advocates The people who will do that work who will stand there with a clipboard uh, day after day receiving dirty looks and for the most part, uh, you know, chilly rejections from upper middle class yoga enthusiasts. That's a rough job. Uh, but then again, you know, to, to be fair to the customers, you just paid, what, $200 for a bag of groceries you don't want to be solicited on the way out. It's just adding insult to injury. So, you know, it's it's hard not to feel like you just got taken every time you go to Whole Foods. That's how I feel. I feel like I just got taken and yet I can't stop going there. I want to hang out there. Uh, I like it. When I'm inside there, <laughs> I just want to be among the produce, you know, it's also orderly and perfect and well-lit, whereas outside it's uh, chaos. So, uh, one more letter and then we'll get started. Uh, this one comes from a listener named, uh, Moneta Moneta. Dear Brad, I wanted to tell you about this park I went to today. This particular park was in Santa Monica. And at this particular park in Santa Monica, there was this one particular little boy who was doing barrel rolls on the grass. This boy, I noticed, was wincing and wailing about something at the same time. This boy seemed to be in some kind of pain. It's possible he was getting pricked and slayed by stinging nettles, for all I know. It wasn't easy to tell why he was in so much pain. Anyway, in spite of all this, this boy, who had pudgy cheeks, I noticed, he just kept rolling around uh, until eventually this woman had to stop this boy and pick him up off the ground, and when she did so, this woman, whoever she was, probably she was his mother or something, she pinched this boy's... (laughs) She pinched this boy's pudgy cheeks, drawing his little rosy face flush up with hers, and she said something like, Use your words, Johnny. Your words. I guess this doesn't have very much to do with your recent podcasts. I just wanted to share this story with you. I remember you saying you have a daughter and a wife, and I guess this is what I imagine marriage looks like. Or something. <laughs> I hope that doesn't offend you. It's probably another deeply rooted misconception of mine. Sincerely Moneta. So thank you, uh Moneta. I, and if I'm mangling your name, I apologize. Uh It sorta is what marriage looks like. <laughs> I can't lie. And the the whole use your words thing, it's common these days with toddlers. I think it's advised by some popular parent book. I don't read any of those. I refuse. My wife reads some of that stuff, but uh, I operate on instinct. Um, but like apparently, as I've been instructed by my wife, we're supposed to use that phrase uh, when my daughter hits us. So... For those of you who don't have kids, uh, when your child is about 2 years old uh, and they get frustrated, they don't get what they want, uh, they don't want to share, they're overtired, uh, what have you. When this happens, oftentimes they will attack you physically. Which I was not <laughs> which I was not aware of. I didn't know that happened. Uh, But when it does happen, you're supposed to say something to the effect of use your words. As your child is assaulting you. That's the only time I've ever said it. But I suppose it might apply to any time your child is inconsolable and has lapsed into a nonverbal state. Use your words. (laughs) I feel like it's a good thing to maybe write on a piece of paper and tack to the wall above your uh, writing desk. Hey everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called truth is the arrow. Mercy is the bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long awaited craft book by Steve Almond based on three decades of his writing career It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest today is Lee Boudreau, the esteemed editor. Uh, after many successful years at Random House, she became the editorial director of Echo Press in two thousand five. Uh, I believe it was two thousand five. She's worked with a long list of notable writers, uh, including Stephen King, Patrick DeWitt, Ron Rash, David Rabluski, and Ben Fountain, winner of last year's National Book Critics Circle Award for Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk, and then uh, perhaps most recently. Uh, She worked on the novel Tampa, the new one from Alyssa Nutting that is generating a lot of buzz currently. So I'm very pleased to have her here on the program, and I hope you enjoy my conversation with Lee Boudreau.
1: Okay, I'm in my office in New York, which is a um, a sort of cramped and dusty little room that overlooks a lovely brick wall where I never get to see interesting... um, urban lives being lived out, which is what I think we always imagine when we, you know, do that rear window thing and peer into the building next to us. Okay. Yeah. I just look at bricks.
0: Okay. See this is the thing because when I'm thinking of uh Lee Boudreaux, high powered New York City editor, I'm picturing I you I'm picturing you with like a lofty view of like all of Manhattan. <laughs>
1: I know, surrounded like in the in the gleaming glass tower, right? And here here it is. The much less glamorous existence than anyone believes we have. There's a lot of paper piled up. Um, there's uh, there's a little carton with three green apples, my snack for the week. There are two bottles of bourbon, um, which hopefully will not prove to be my snack for the week, but they are they are here by my side. Um, and lots of stacks of disorganized uh paper.
0: Wow, okay and you know i 've been inside some uh, agents' offices i 've been inside a, a couple of publishing houses and like uh-huh. this is this is often the case there's just you know there 's lots of books obviously, and there 's usually not as much space as you would think and right. you know, when you when you read about publishing and you read interviews with editors and you know prepping for this, I was reading interviews that you 've done in the past that are uh, out there online and uh, one of the things that strikes me is. Uh, how difficult it is to be an editor in terms of the workload. Like you, you don't even edit during the day when you're at work never. as an
1: editor. It's absolutely true. There are two there are two full time jobs going on, and I have a four year old daughter at home. And it wasn't until I had a child that I realized how much work I was doing on my own time. Because yeah, you ne- you almost never even read a submission in the office ever. Unless it's something that somehow has come in and blown your mind so quickly, you've handed it out to colleagues, and you all think, oh, my God, I've got to shut the door and read right now. I can remember one time when a boss of mine did that. I may not have ever seen it happen again. Um, So you do office stuff all day in the office, and then you go home. And you have to read all the submissions, which are the books you might want to publish. And all the other editors who might want to publish them are reading at the same time. So it you know it behooves you to be sort of timely here and to be quick. And if you are liking the beginning of something, get on to the end of it and make sure you, you like it and you want to be in on the game. And then you've got the job. I guess there's are three full-time jobs. And then you've got the job of editing the books you actually own. And I tend to edit mine you know, I, I I personally edit all of mine, and I do it several times, and I read every word and every phrase and every paragraph and make a comment if I think something should go. I kind of explain why in the margin, or I explain why I'm confused. So, And that's my favorite part of the job. If they would just lock me in a room and let me do that forever, I would happily read the same book six times. It's like puzzle solving. It's so much fun. Um, but yeah, so it's it's a huge part of your personal life. It's all your nights, all your weekends, and add in item. I've had I've had assistants before who thought they really wanted to be editors and they realized after they did it a couple of years that the workload doesn't get less. It just gets it gets bigger and the books get better and the books get I don't know higher stakes involved and you love these authors you've worked with for many years. You want to edit them yourselves, but the explosion of office life and email, and we do that all the time too, it is actually pretty hard to to keep up. I try to actually get out of the office at least one day a week just to catch up on the actual editing that I used to do all, all day Saturday and Sunday. Well, you live a really exciting life as an editor. Was you say, like, it's like the- it really is just like, as a young person, do you want to spend every Saturday of your life inside reading a book? If the answer is yes, if you really weren't ever going to be rock climbing anyhow – Think about being an editor. But if you have any interest in the social life or rock climbing, please don't go into this line of business.
0: Wow. And so how do you – I mean a couple questions. First of all, the book that you alluded to earlier, the one that your boss ran around the office like during the day in process, like do you remember which title that was? Can you share that?
1: gosh. And now that, that was a long time ago. That was at like, that was when I was an editorial assistant at Doubleday and the editor was Deb Futter and the book was Patrick McGraw's Asylum. And I just say, it was notable to me. I didn't understand then, you know, because I was like two months on the job. It was, and, and she shut the door and read in her office. And I've, you know, we've, we've all fallen a little bit in love with something and tried to do that, but it's just, you, you can't. You have too many other commitments. You have phone calls and you have meetings to get to, you know, in which the covers of your books are being decided or author an agent need to come in and you're brainstorming the plan prior to publication. So um, it, I, in retrospect, I've always looked back at that and gone, wow, Deb loved that book and knew she had such a great novel in her hands because she shut the door and tried not to come out for several hours while she just burrowed to the end of it to be the first one to say, I want to bid on this.
0: Okay. And so, and so it
1: just, it's really fun in the office when people are all getting excited about stuff. And that and that happens. It's just that during the hours of nine to five, none of us here who are dying to fall in love with the next thing are getting to fall in love with anything. We're really like answering our email and doing this and writing the copy to get on the back of the book and making sure that the you know, the, the cover is gonna come in looking like we expected it to, and then we all go home at five o'clock or later or whatever. Um, and then you start pulling the stuff, you know, the manuscript pages out of your book bag and thinking, ooh, what good do I have here?
0: Oh, my God. Okay, so uh, how many manuscripts do you get in an average week? Like, how many are you going through?
1: Gosh. You know, and what's, what's interesting about publishing is it still has sort of seasons to it, like very busy periods, and then what feels like kind of more fallow seasons, and that doesn't mean you're not getting submissions, but there are times when you're just getting them hand over fist, so right before the Frankfurt Book Fair in the fall... Books start flying around and they're good books. These are books that, I mean, you know, they're, they're especially good books. These are books that the agent has very much planned to go out with at Frankfurt because there's a big international book fair. And if they get a big U.S. sale and a big U.K. sale and so forth, they could sell it in 20 countries when they go to Frankfurt. So they have, sometimes they've sort of held their powder for big book fairs. So you know when the things start flying in, if you, I mean, you could get 20 in a day. And you know that these are, you know, good things that you need to pay attention to very quickly, all of them. Um, There's a London Book Fair in the spring. Again, things, I mean, I must have gotten 20 things in a day right before London. Um, And you take a quick look at them and just try to figure out, you know, what goes on the top of the stack? What do I come back to later? In a, you know, your best case scenario is you either love it or really don't love it right away. The hard thing is when you like it and you want to keep going and you want to see what happens, and you realize, you know, how, how long do I do that? Do I read 300 pages of a 600 page manuscript? Do I read 100? Do I, you know, if I'm torn at page 50, where, where do I finally let myself say either yes or no? Um, so yeah, in in the busy times you could you could get, and nonfiction is a different thing. I do almost all fiction, which means I am mostly getting a complete manuscript um, to buy. And sometimes I'll buy two books at one time, and I'll buy a complete manuscript, and that's the first novel, and then they'll just give me the idea of what their second novel is. So sometimes I do buy things that are not yet written. But with nonfiction, often an editor will buy things that are not yet written because you're buying off a proposal. So a nonfiction editor at a busy time of year, I mean, they could easily be getting 50 proposals in a day, that's probably an exaggeration, um, but they could be getting 20, and those are you know, shorter, it depends, you can have a 75-page proposal, or you could have a 25-page proposal, um, but they might be racing through even more material, I feel like I'm getting full manuscripts and, and trying to um, to read them and give them all a little bit of my time.
0: So, and when you're reading a manuscript and you're evaluating it and just, you know, for the sake of an example, let's say fiction, since that's what you're primarily doing, how much of your brain is focused on, uh, is this good? Do I authentically love this? And then how much of your brain is focused on, uh, do I think this will sell? We can make money on this. This author has a track record. Uh, she's trending, you know, she's on an, she has an Mm -hmm. ascendant, an ascendant sales track. Like what goes into the, what goes into the calculation?
1: Well, okay, don't let my bosses hear this. Um, but uh, my actual boss, Dan Halpert, who's the guy who founded Echo, he can hear this. Nobody else should hear this. Because I work at this small imprint that has sort of an idiosyncratic profile, I I am so fortunate that I get to do things that I fall in love with even when some of the other parts of that equation are not – are not easy. And I never publish anybody who, who have a platform, it feels like, you know, so that never goes into my calculation. If it's somebody, um, it's not, it's not essential to me, I should say. I, I do have like two nonfiction authors and their platform in fact would be the articles they had written beforehand. So I, I do have those, those two guys who kind of came in with a certain, um, profile, most of the novels I do though, and story collections, I do a ton of debuts, maybe they 've had a few things published in literary journals, maybe they haven 't um, i have I also take on people I do this all the time people who have bad track records, and a track record is just so hard because the publisher has to overcome what the people in the bookstores are going to say when they just type the name into the computer. And what they're going to say is I've stocked this guy's books two times before. I've only ever sold ten copies. Uh, please give me ten of the new one. And you have to overcome. And truly, that could be. Please give me two copies of the new one. Ten would ten would probably be a nice order um, for an individual independent. Say, um, so it's not that the publisher is unwilling to take on somebody with a with a rocky track. It's just that there is so much work built into convincing people at the store level, um, that you're going to do something totally different with this writer than has ever been done before. And the way you do that is to actually have a book in hand that makes them believe that. I published a guy named Patrick DeWitt. He wrote a really a book called Ablutions but it had a very it was a it was a dark sort of LA barfly kind of look it was not going to be everybody's cup of tea the book i bought was called The Sisters Brothers and it was a western and it was so bizarre and so funny from page 1 i mean paragraph 1 that book had me hooked and i knew i was going to read all of the manuscript and as i read the whole thing i just knew i am completely crazy for this And then the next thing that sort of happens is you come into the office and you think, oh, I should mention that book to my boss. Or, oh, I should mention that to, you know, one of the other people who reads stuff for me in the office. Or, oh, I gotta grab that sales director because he's from Texas and he's gonna love that. So you start thinking about the people you wanna put it in the hands of. And like with the Sisters Brothers, what happened was I could not shut up about that book. I ended up talking about it and really enjoying myself talking about it. It wasn't work anymore. This is just pure proselytizing about something that you loved and it made you laugh, and you're quoting the jokes, and then you're saying, and then you got to get to the part where the horse does this and blah, blah, blah. And that's how the enthusiasm starts to spread. Start. So I knew the whole time I had that manuscript in, we had to overcome that track record. But we always said we can do it. And Echo can really do that kind of thing because we are, again, a small sort of boutique imprint and we take a lot of time with the books and we, we get those bound galleys out there early so people can read it themselves and start believing that we have a different kind of book. So mm. doing it right now, it's a book called Visitation Street. That author had published a small book with St. Martin's a couple of years ago, didn't really do anything, didn't really get a lot of review attention. And then I bought a book called Visitation Street that's sort of a mystery set in this awesome Brooklyn neighborhood of Red Hook that just has such a great sense of atmosphere to it. And the writing is beautiful, and what happened to the girl who went missing is answered in a totally satisfying way. It's not like a police procedural, but I thought, this works... Absolutely, as a literary novel, I think it is utterly satisfying on the level of the mystery and the suspense of what, ha- you know, here we see this girl go off on a raft and we never see her again and what happens to her and the ripple effects of the whole community. Um, and I said, you know, let's let's take her on. We are totally going to overcome that track record because we're going to prove we have a completely different book. So I, I do have to think about it, but I get to think about it in a fairly – um, you know, liberating way here, that is that is not always the case.
0: And, and at this stage of your career, can, can you green light stuff? Is it just a matter of you saying, yes, I want to do this and it gets done? Or do you have to?
1: No, not at all. I always, and my boss, Dan, who founded Echo 40 years ago, living in Tangier with Paul Bowles, and he still sits in the office next to me, he always wants to read a bit of everything I'm interested in. And I have to say, um when he hired me, I mean, that was just a beautiful literary house with just this wonderful, you know, blue chip reputation. And I, I really, I came here knowing that I was going to do books that were a little bigger than the footprint Echo was known for, which was truly, a, it was a one-man show, it was Dan Halpern. Um, so I was going to do books that, that you know may not have been submitted to Dan himself, but that could live here happily on the Echo list. And Dan has more Catholic taste than anybody i would ever worked with before. He has, I really, I got here and I was like, I'm going to be like the Shania Twain of Echo. I'm going to be like, come on, fellas, I got me a Cajun hairdressing novel, and we're just going to go crazy with that. But I tell you, Dan has loved things that I never expected him to love. And so he always looks at what I want to do, but he is the one who kind of gets to decide, um, yes, let's go for it. And, you know, depending on where the money goes, sometimes we have to sort of get other people to weigh in or give us an estimate of what they realistically think we might ship in a given year. Um, you know, the authority kind of stays here with the publisher to sort of supersede what other people say. Like maybe the sales force said, yeah, I like that Western, but, man, Westerns are tough, and there hadn't really been a comedic Western that really worked in a while, so we're not sure. So plug these numbers in and see what happens. And we were bidding against other people for that book, and I'm sure we outbid the second, you know, the first runner up by not a ton of money, but enough to sort of and we put another bill down on the table at that point. So we did kind of want it more than anybody else, and we were sure we could do something with it. But so Dan is the one who really decides, you know, he's let me bid on things that he he did not totally see but believed i saw something but he had read some of it himself and wanted to know what it is
0: i gotta say i gotta say lee if like you walked into my office if i were him uh or if i were he Mm -hmm. is that the proper english but if i'm if i'm don't ask me
1: that grammar that's a copy (laughs) (laughs) editor
0: if i'm dan halpern if i'm sitting there and you walked in with the sisters brothers manuscript and you were as enthusiastic as you seem I don't think I could say no to you. I'd just be like, yes.
1: <laughs> I, th- I think that may have been said before by, like, the next person up who's just like, she just gets so excited. How are you going to tell her no? But, and you know, but see, what's fun is, I mean, I'm sure it's true in many other professions as well. Um, something is only true once you've made it true, you know, like – it is It is a true fact, um, to be funny, saying that, uh, that, gee, a, a book like this hasn't worked before uh, all the way until somebody does one that does. And then it becomes a real true fact that um, that, gee, books like that can work. So I feel like we're always disproving our um, you know, conventional wisdom all the time here. But I have gotten to do some off kilter books. I did um Kevin Wilson, The Family Fang, which was God, was beloved in house and has sold and sold and sold and sold and, and reprinted and reprinted and reprinted and a very quirky book about a family of performance artists. And then I got to do the Sisters Brothers, and then last year I did Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk, which is football and the Iraq War. And that is not, somebody a week ago, like a scout, I think, or an agent was saying, God, that must have been a fun book to pitch. And I was like, No, that was not an easy pitch until it became sort of a successful book. You know, now it sounds like, Oh, that was a fun book to pitch because it doesn't sound like anything else out there. But talking to a room of 50 people who have been listening to one editor after another get up all day long at a conference and pitch books in 30 seconds, saying you have a book that takes place during a Dallas Cowboys football game about a bunch of returning soldiers, um, it it wasn't like, boy, that's a book for everyone. That's just – that's a slam dunk. Everyone in America is going to read that book. I mean, so I've gotten to do – A number of quirky and off-kilter books, which make it easier for me to go in and do the next one. You know, it's hard, it's hard to switch gears. It's hard to do a lot of one thing and then say, oh, now I want to do this quirky thing. And so there are books that I know Echo can do better than other imprints can. And I know there are books that Echo would not do as well as an imprint who is already known for doing those things. So to, to some extent, you've got to know what your, what your strengths are and, and how to play to them. But I I happen to have quirky taste, which would probably never excel at. You know, I've got the next just humongous million copy hardcover love story bestseller. I may never be good at picking one of those out of the bunch. But I've gotten to do some of these odd off kilter books, and I don't think I have very esoteric taste at all. I feel like it's I just I have a pretty wide. Birth. Um, I do a lot of male writers and, and male-oriented books. I do a lot of you know female writers as well. I don't do a whole lot of very um, very domestically-minded things. I don't do a lot of kind of interior relationship books or or sisters or mothers and daughters and best friends or, or marriages or that kind of thing. And I feel like I'm a I'm a real plot junkie. Like, I don't, I don't do the general malaise of the upper middle class so well. <laughs> if they would like to rob a bank, I am happy to follow up on the malaise they experience in the wake of that bank robbing. But, uh, you know, my my plot junkiness, I think, helps a little bit, too. I may do some oddball sounding books. And again, one debut after another, after another, the sales force would probably stand up and cheer if I ever you know, stood up and said, and I'm going to now pitch somebody who has sold many books in the past. <laughs> but I just keep reinventing it every time. Here's somebody you've never heard of. Let's go do him. <laughs> um, but because they've let me do that and some of them have worked, I feel like we're now a great spot to get up and talk about the next one. And I've you know, got this book that'll come out next summer, and it's 600 pages long and it's it's a dark story set in a very rural place about a social worker and, and kind of a Unabomber character. I mean, that sounds weird. i got to tell you, it will light your head on fire, and every one of its 600 pages needs to be there. And I could defend any sentence on it, you know. Um, What's
0: it called? Who, who and I feel like it? because
1: we've it's, it's a guy named Smith Henderson, and it's called Fourth of July Creek, and it's his debut novel. Um, but I feel like, man, that is that is perfect. I can't wait to get up and talk about that. Coming after something like Billy Lynn, you know, well, where well, we get to say we're the guys who did that. We're going to do it with this one.
0: Well, that's what I was going to say. Is that like you know, I, I I can go down your list, but I mean, I've had Ben Fountain on this show. He's so impressive. Yeah, He's, like so great to talk to.
1: Um, yeah,
0: Eleanor Henderson I've had on this show. Larry Doyle. Yay. And, and, and forgive me if I'm if I think I got all this right, but like Larry Doyle, Benjamin Kunkel. Uh, I'm going to screw this one up. David Rabluski. Um,
1: yep. Yeah. Good.
0: Yeah. Stephen King, Arthur Phillips, Peter Straub, Patrick DeWitt, who we've already spoken of, Alyssa Nutting, Ron Rash. Like the list goes on. But you, I, like, that's one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you. I feel like you have really good taste. And I'm curious to know that, um, with regard to the success of Billy Lenz in particular, because I feel like from a literary fiction standpoint, that book got as good of a ride as any author could hope for. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. a, it's National Book Critic Circle Award. Everybody loved it. Everybody, I mean, I don't know, not not everybody, but 98.7% of people who read it were so impressed by it. And I'm curious to know, how does that change your position in the business as an editor, uh, both from the perspective of the kinds of submissions you're getting and the echelon of writers that you might now have an opportunity to work with? And then also on the sales side. Uh, in terms of like your relationship with, uh, you know, sales representatives from bookstores or whatever it is that right. look to you and say, okay, this is a Lee Boudreaux edited book. She's picked this author. We trust her track record. She did Ben Fountain. Like, have you, have you detected a change in temperature in the aftermath of that?
1: Gosh, you know, I feel like booksellers, um, booksellers are so great to echo and pay, and pay such attention to it that I feel like, um, you know, Dan just did The Sun, Philip Meyer, this summer, which I feel like. Boy, is I am proud to be sitting next to the office where all that went down. And doing Fourth of July Creek next year, coming after The Sun and Billy Lynn, it all feels like it definitely, it all works together to make those stores sort of take a chance. And again, pick up a galley that is 600 pages long. when we did David Robleski, that was the story of Edgar Sautel, that manuscript was 900 pages long. And I walked around and I put it on the desk of some of my salespeople, and it was the beginning of August, and I said, maybe you would want to take this with you on your vacation. You know what I mean? I'm sure they were like, that. that's exactly what I needed on my vacation. I was just writing the list, sunscreen, 900 pages of a debut manuscript. <laughs> but they, they, they took it and they read it, and I would say that is, that is easier now. Putting my 600 pages of Smith Henderson on their desk, you know, five years after Edgar Salter came out, it it is different, and you do feel like you get to you get to kind of call in those chips every now and then and say we're you know this book is long and it is dark and it is this or it is that, but we do feel like we are standing on you know firm footing to say we're going to do it and we're going to do a good job with it, um, you know, and you just hope you get review attention and bloggers have gotten so important in spreading the word about things. I'd say they are up there with booksellers in terms of that is how the real word of mouth gets started. Billy Lynn, I would honestly say I have got to to lay so much of the credit for the success of that book at the feet of the critics. They made that book happen. They, they, they embraced it and they reviewed it and it was reviewed everywhere. And then it showed up on everyone's best of the year list. I mean, I've never put together a list of Best of the Year. His was like thirty deep. Huge national publications, regional publications, everything. Men's magazines, women's magazines, you know, the pure book review outlets. Esquire he won a he won an award for best sports writing. I mean it was incredible. So I really feel like that was one that was, you know, slow out of the gate. When we, when we, you know, it got great review tension out of the gate, but in terms of pure sales, it was not exploding off the shelves in the first couple months at all. And I'm just so thankful that we can still look at a book and say, that one did not just, you know, open like a blockbuster week one, and then we, we, we kept riding that momentum. Billy built momentum, and it's nice to see that that can still happen. Because it's harder now. I mean, reviews just, you used to be able to get a certain thing and feel like you are launched, you are on the way and now there is, I would say there is no one sure thing. You know you have to hope it somehow all happens right around the time the book comes out or in the case of Billy like happens and then just keeps happening. And he published I want to say in May. So it had already had a good five six-month run and then all of those end-of-the-year roundups started happening and it was just boom, 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 boom and then he started getting award nominations. So his, his paperback life is fantastic, and his hardcover life was a slower build. So I really have to say the critics were the ones who made that happen.
0: Well, he was also on this podcast, which had a huge impact, I'm sure.
1: Hell, yeah. We saw the <laughs> Don't think we were walking in our grass and going, I see a pop reprint. Come on. <laughs> so, um,
0: but, yeah, like I feel like, I mean – Maybe I don't. I don't think it's hyperbole to say. I feel like that book is like a classic. I feel like that's a book that's going to be read a long time from now. I could be wrong, but I feel yeah. like it seems like that. That's the sense I got, and there seems to be um, such a depth of intelligence and such great wit in his work. It's just rare. that's yeah. why people love it so much. But.
1: And I do. I have to say. It's the book, by far, that people say still at this point. It's clear that it's still being discovered in paperback, but it's just on so many people's radar. And not a week goes by that somebody doesn't tell me, either in my personal life, like, oh, that was your book, or I'm just reading this thing. Have you ever heard of it? Wait, that's yours? Or on the work side, agents and and authors and somebody just flying back from some seminar somewhere and says, man, I picked this up in the airport. I've been meaning to read it since last fall, because, you know, once you work in publishing, you can't read anything for pleasure anymore. Um, and it, it seems to be so really just supremely on people's nightstand.
0: Well, and you know, I was talking to Ben, um, Ben on the show and, uh, he was telling me, you know, and this was like, it's, it's always heartening and this is, this might sound a little funny, but it's always heartening for me. And I think for listeners to hear about the struggles of writers who have written these, these really spectacular books, but like he was telling me there was like a book that he had written, like an entire book that he had written in between, um, Uh, Che Guevara, the story collection, I'm blanking on the title, and and Billy Lenz.
1: Yeah, Brief Encounters with Che Guevara, yeah. He likes likes the long titles, doesn't
0: he? Yes, he does, but he was saying, you know, there was a book in between that you guys uh, sort of mutually decided wasn't quite ready to roll, and so he then moved on to Billy Lenz, and so, you know, like, you're at an interesting juncture, I think, because you're working with writers of his caliber, um... And you know, like when you read something, boy, you have to really trust your gut, and you have to be willing to right. say, even if it's somebody who's that smart and that gifted, you have to say, I, "My, I'm, I don't think it's quite ready."
1: You know that is, that's such an interesting story. Then kept bringing it up, right? When <laughs> Billy was coming out, and I was like, "I didn't know we were going to talk about that." You don't have to tell anybody, but you're right. I think hearing that it has not just come easy, and that you know, between that, even publishers first book until you know he's in his late forties or whatever, and then to do, and then to have this you know, crushing experience in between and have to wait six years. I know there are writers who would throw themselves out of a window at the notion of not publishing their second book until five or six years later. Like they're just going to have vanished off the face of the earth and no one's ever going to read them again, which I, I do not believe. I totally understand the value of having something come out again and keeping people, you know, in mind, et cetera. But I think it has got to be about the book. That is the end of the story and publishing Publishing a, a a novel that is not your best and, and doing that sophomore slump thing, I, I don't think it's worth doing that versus getting something absolutely right, even if it takes, you know, four years or five years instead of, you know, the two that you dream of. But what was funny about The Texas Itch – that was the name of that, that novel – that was a book that Ben had been working on for 10 years. It had lived in his drawer. That is the book where he was learning how to become a writer, and then he would write his short stories. And they are what eventually got published in places and what became Brick's Encounters with Big there. So he very naturally went back and kept working on Texas Hitch and it grew and it shrank and it morphed and it this and it that, as, as those sort of novels do. And I tell you, I would probably never have had the, I don't know, the the the, the sense or the gumption to say, I don't think this is ready. If it weren't for two things, first of all, he and I did like three edits on it. So I sat down, read it all, thought about everything that wasn't working for me and what to do about it, or why something wasn't working. I mean, it was there was endless process going on here so I'm always worried that people have the impression that you know I read something it's just like eh, try it again you know <laughs> give me, me something do you have that in blue you know and that is what it so you know he got a huge edit back and then he worked on it for however many months and sent it back and I want to say we did another second round of like, man, this is still so complicated, and there's so many characters, and yet I don't love our protagonist enough to follow him on this trip, and I love the mother, but there isn't enough of her. So another huge round of it, and then it came back a third time, and that's when I read it, and I thought, um, I have seen this before, and I worked with a, a terrific writer who was a was a lifelong journalist, and he had done the same thing. He had that novel he always wanted to write, and it had lived in his drawer, and grown and shrunk for 10 years, you know, like sourdough bread rising and you'd punch it back down and it would rise again. And sometimes I think it is just very hard to make that thing that already exists, especially when it exists at such great length, 500 pages or so. You know, in both of these cases, it was not just a rough draft of a novel. It was a very long, complicated, big book. And sometimes it is, it is hard to kind of go back and retrofit it you're now a better writer you know you've learned so much in those 10 years of writing both that long thing and then writing other things and then writing short stories and then revising that short story for zoetrope and blah blah you've learned so much and in both these cases they were they were trying to kind of retroactively go back and reanimate this very large thing that just sort of felt a little inert and it was you know they 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 were not as good when they started that project as they were now. But bless Ben's heart for being able to, like, swallow that bitter pill. Bless his agent's heart, too, because nobody wanted to play hardball with anybody here. I just said, Ben, I think after Che Guevara... This is not your best work, and you have such goodwill from those critics. So many people are looking to see what you do next. I don't think you want to squander this and and try to regain their interest on book three, because then you'll have a, an uphill battle to climb. Well, but Ben had to be able to take you know take that blow to his pride to afford to do it, and to not say, well, she might not like it, but I'm gonna go see who does, because I bet somebody will. You know, so he he behaved. I mean, just with such professionalism and maturity and affection between the both of us, that I'm, I'm so pleased it didn't turn into something unfortunate. But well, you know, it, like, it would never have happened had we not edited it like three full times.
0: Well, sure, and like look at look at what happened. <laughs> I think it worked out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. But I mean, you know, and this is the thing too, is that when you're working with somebody. Um, who's had a lot of success and like you've edited uh, Peter Straub, Stephen King, I mean mm-hmm. guys who have sold a gazillion books and um, you know, who are, who are considerably older than you, you know, which also has a different dynamic. I'm sure when you're editing something,
1: totally. totally.
0: And so it's like, you know, but I think that, uh, and tell me if I'm wrong, but I think that when somebody's had a lot of success, it's probably harder for them to find somebody who's willing to uh, push back when the, the feeling is authentic. And like, I think, you know, personally as a writer, like, I long for that, you know all you want is someone right. who's giving you a careful read and like a really considered right. honest response and if it happens to be negative, it may be disappointing, but I mean, my goodness, like you you know I think it can save you is what you know I think it can save you and i i, think- I yeah, I
1: was gonna say I feel like um my writers seem to mostly value that, that there is – and it only happens once. Like there's only one time in that process to really do it at such great length. And I always feel like you have sat alone in a room and committed 100,000 words to paper. Surely you want to have somebody sort of read every one of them carefully, and it's like wiggling a loose tooth. You know what I mean? I feel like, is this one – I, I think this one's going to come out. Let's get rid of it. But the, the, most writers seem to experience that process as the joy of having somebody pay that close of attention and argue it through and point things out. And I always think the writer is going to come up with a better solution than anything. I mean, I would never suggest make this happen here. I will suggest it by way of saying... It feels like we 're kind of stuck here, and something along the lines of this ought to be generating or happening or something or other, but the writer will always come up with a with a better solution, but I think most of them appreciate going through the process of having all of these possibilities kind of kicked around a little bit, even if they and ninety percent of the time the writer knows exactly what they wanted to have happen, and they just didn't realize how clearly it was coming through on the page. And they can answer your question in a minute when you're sitting there pulling your hair out saying, why would this character do this? Oh, the reason is this. And and I just not made that clear. And it can sometimes be very easy to straighten out a problem because – They're cumulative on the page. If you've gotten misdirected by somebody early on, or if they just came across as utterly unsympathetic early on, and now they're supposed to be, you know, the emotional heart of the novel, you strip out a few um, accidental phrases early on that kind of put the wrong taste in the reader's mouth, and suddenly you don't have a problem at all anymore, you know? So I think most writers do enjoy just being looked at that carefully because, again, once it leaves my desk and goes on to copy editing, you know, they're they're making smaller changes and, and grammatical things and will pick up on continuity errors and so forth, but they're not really going to address whether an entire storyline is less well-developed than than it should be. Um, so you kind of have this one wonderful window of time after the book has been bought to or when the manuscript has been delivered to sort of do it at such length. And I feel like most writers don't mind you getting in there and doing it, especially yeah. when they know it's up to them. They get to decide what to do about it, and if the answer is "I don't want to do nothing," then that's what we're going to do. Right. Um, but it, it's actually kind of fun to to kick it around and just know somebody can argue with you for two hours on whether that real estate agent really would have slept with that neighbor or not. You right. know, well, right, no, <laughs> like it's... the fictional world becomes very alive to us both.
0: Right, right. Well, no, it's like taking the book to the spa. So I was. Like the copy editing, all of it just feels like, you know, you're getting saved, I think, you know, because –
1: just, I used to say it felt like a manicure, you know, where it's right. just like, let's, you know, really, it's going to boy. And when you sit down to have a manicure and you know that they're feeling a little shy and hesitant, you're just like, this isn't going to be a good manicure because they're not bossing me around. Enough. So,
0: so basically, think
1: of me editorially as just a mean manicure.
0: I was going to say, you're like essentially like an esthetician for books, you know.
1: <laughs> there we go. <laughs> there we go. So. I had put it under that light.
0: Um, so when it comes to agents. Okay. Uh, I'm Uh always interested in this particular aspect of uh, book sales, like that this transaction where you're sitting there, you're receiving however many submissions you receive on a given day, depending on what time of year it is or what's happening in the business. Mm -hmm. Um, Will you read pretty much anything any agent sends you, or do you only read stuff from uh, certain agents uh, who you have a relationship with previously or who you know have done good work in the past? Uh, or somehow you know that they have tastes that you feel is potentially consistent with yours. Like, how do you parse that? Like, if you get 15 books delivered, 15 manuscripts delivered to you in a day, and one is from, um, you know, uh, Binky Urban, and one is from, like, some, like, you know, freelance agent who works for himself. Like, do you look at that and go, okay, this freelancer is not getting my attention, but, you know, whoever Binky just submitted to me, I'm going to read.
1: Well, I mean in all honesty, there are certain agents that you know you are you are going to take very seriously right off the bat, and whether it's because they are the the grand dams of the industry or whether it's because it's somebody that you know you just like personally sometimes, or like their taste, or admire that thing they did last year. There can be any number of reasons. So if Binky sends me something, I'm going to read it fast, absolutely. But there are also any number of agents who I just know, even if I don't end up bidding on the book, I'm always going to like it, I'm always going to admire it, and I'm always going to understand what it's doing on my desk. So there's another whole echelon of people that I will always – always look at as soon as I possibly can. And there are even some in that group that I have to apologize for. I just did this last week where I said, I am always so late getting back to you. And it's because I know I always like the book so much. If I'm not in love with it a hundred pages in, I'm going to keep trying to fall in love with it. I always assume it's my own, you know, hectic schedule and I read it on the subway going home and then I didn't pick it up again for three hours. And surely that's my fault that I'm not following along. I'm going to take another try at it. So I, I probably spend this much time, Uh, not making a snap judgment as anybody. I should get a little snappier, actually. But there are a lot of agents I know I like their stuff and I'm going to read it quickly even if it's not something I end up being so madly in love with that I buy. But I have to say... Two of the biggest books I ever did came from agents whose names I'd never heard of before. So I think it's a big mistake to think that that if you don't already know somebody, you don't need to to look at their books. And those books were prep by Curtis Sittenfeld, and um, the story of Edgar Tell by David Robleski. Wow.
0: Okay.
1: So it you know had I had I not been paying some attention and seeing what was actually on the page there, I would have I would have missed something good. Now I have to say, any editor. Uh, you know, every editor has an assistant, and there's a lot of uh, manuscripts that fly around between the two of us where it's a, you take a look and come in here and give me the quick, like, I, I love this one, and this one sounded good, but, you know, take a quick look at it, et cetera, et cetera. I tend to look at as many things myself as I possibly can, but it's it's just not possible that – Everything stays here in my office on, on an equal playing field. So there's a whole lot of prioritizing, shuffling around and reprioritizing. And this one we got in five days ago. Let's look at this quickly, even though we got a bunch of new stuff in today. So we're always sort of bouncing it around back and forth and, you know, reading things for other editors also. Um, but, you know, I I think you're crazy if you if you don't let the book speak for itself. And, you know, you, you see things in in the cover letter sometimes that make you perk up and – and take an interest in it. I mean, I obviously end up being attracted to, to anything that sounds Southern, you know, and the weirder Southern, the better. So, I mean, if there's, <laughs> if there's some Southern connection there in the cover letter, I tell you what, I am probably going to put it on my pile to take home that night, even if I've already got 10 things there. Um, you know, I've had, you realize had you totally realize unsolicited this is, things come
0: this, in. This is going to a, uh, this is gonna lead to a whole rash of submissions where it's going to be <laughs> –
1: People, people are going to
0: suddenly put, like, some sort of Southern, like, like, you know, red beans and rice by, you know, whatever.
1: I know. Exactly. Exactly. It's funny. And I just – I have a new assistant here, and um, she is Southern also. So Lord knows what we're going to do to my list now. She and I, <laughs> amazingly enough, last week – and she just started last week – we discovered halfway through our first week together that we both had stories to tell about people catching snakes and then trying to drive home while holding them and the snake getting attached to the gear shift and not being able to be easily removed <laughs> from the car. So I'm thinking, get ready for a lot of weird southern sneaky books coming from Echo.
0: <laughs> well, and where in the south are you from? Because my I, – I, you know, the, the other thing that uh, strikes me in addition to your – you know, all the things that you've done in your career is, you know, my folks are from Louisiana. So the name Boudreaux – Oh,
1: I, no kidding. Yeah,
0: I grew up hearing the name uh, Boudreaux or Boudreaux. I don't know how you – it's Boudreaux how you pronounce it. but
1: uh, I think. Yeah. Is
0: a Boudreau. I mean, you know, it dif- it differs. But the-
1: you know, See, I say Boudreau. I say Lee Boudreau, Well, when I answer the phone, I say Lee Boudreau just because I'm being fast about it. So now I've gotten even myself confused. Now it's like Appalachian and Appalachian. It's like, yeah. wait, which way did I grow up saying and right. what do I do now? <laughs> right, right. So wait, where in Louisiana? Uh,
0: small towns, you know, like Morgan City and then just a little town outside of Baton Rouge called Plaquemine
1: in Plaquemine Parish. Yeah, yeah, I know yeah. that word, that name, one of the coolest spellings ever.
0: <laughs> yeah, sure. So I mean, I um, my, my hope my whole extended family is Louisiana and I'm like the anomaly who grew up in Milwaukee just because my dad's job took him, a, you know, took us around a little bit. Oh, but
1: wow. Different... And did you get to spend time back in Louisiana with the relatives? Oh, yeah. As every, you were growing
0: up? Every Christmas, every year. I mean, you know, Man. tons and tons. I'm going to a wedding down there uh, this weekend. I'm going to Baton Rouge for a wedding. So
1: Oh, I love it. I love it. I grew up in Virginia, but as you rightly diagnosed with Boudreaux, um, my dad's family was from Raceland and Thibodeau area.
0: Oh, wow. Okay, so you do have Louisiana roots.
1: Oh, yeah. And, I mean, my dad was one of four kids, and the oldest two spoke Cajun French and learned to speak English when they went to school. And the younger, youngest two don't speak any Cajun French at all. It was right at the point when they were kind of trying to eradicate that. Right. And it's amazing to see over the course of four children in one family how completely the shift occurred, that two were native Cajun speakers and learned English, and the other two never picked up the Cajun at all.
0: Well, my so, godfather. yeah, they were,
1: they were way out there in the bayous.
0: Okay, yeah, my godfather, uh, his name is Elmore Chauvin.
1: <laughs> nice.
0: Um, he, uh, he speaks C- Cajun French. He grew up speaking Cajun French. Um,
1: nice. Did it, you ever learn any?
0: No. I, mean, I speak a, you? I, I speak a little French, and, I mean, I, I have certain Cajun words that I'm sure would ring a bell with me, but no, I mean, you know, uh-huh. I, I didn't have, like, a full education in it or anything.
1: Um, yeah. Now, my dad didn't speak enough at home for any of us to pick it up. I wish. I wish he had. I. I probably would never have gotten it. My, my brother has a very good ear for music, and I keep thinking he might have been able to pick it up. They're doing all sorts of things now to kind of try to keep it alive and keep it from being completely lost.
0: Yeah. Well, that's no, a great. Can part you tell of the good Cajun jokes? Uh, I mean, you know, no, not a ton. I mean, I've heard some. My my, my dad's better at that. My dad and his brother are like, little, yeah. they love the Cajun jokes, but they, uh, you know, I, 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 I'm not good at remembering them.
1: Um, I was going to say, I do not do a convincing Cajun accent, though I wish I did. Um, and... Uh, many, many years ago, when I'm still back at Random House, I got to work on one of Helen Prejean's books, you know, the nun who wrote Dead sure. Man Walking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so she had been acquired by the most esteemed editor, Jason Epstein, and she is the death row nun. I mean, it could not be more serious. People are all gathered around in a conference room, and they are meeting Helen Prejean, and, Lord, this is serious. And so she comes <laughs> in, and I'd never met her before either, and she comes in and she goes, and this is my editor, little Boudreau here. And then she launches in this awesome Awesome Cajun accent into a Boudreaux Thibodeau joke, right? And it was about. Boudreaux's daughter goes off to. College. I'm not going to do it in the cage accent. Boudreaux's daughter goes off to college and she calls home and she says, "Daddy, Daddy, I'm worried. I think I might be pregnant." And Boudreaux says to her, "Oh, don't worry, darling. Go get one of those tests. Maybe it's not yours." <laughs> right, right, right. So then, when she went, like this room full of very serious, you know, like thirty sales reps were there to meet her, and she starts off with a Boudreaux joke. I was like, "Okay, they're not taking me so seriously now after that." <laughs>
0: yeah, see, she's a Louisiana name. That's it's a different breed.
1: Yeah, so she she knows, like, oh well, yeah, Boudreaux. Not such a not such a rare name though.
0: No, no. So, um, I want to I want to ask you uh like getting back to book stuff just because uh mm-hmm. all, I think all this stuff is so interesting and definitely interesting for people listening. Uh have you ever passed on a book that you regret deeply? Like you look at it and you go, "Oh my god, I can't believe I said no to that. That author, they were right, I was wrong. I screwed
1: up." I think every editor – I know for a fact every editor in the world has that story of both I wrestled with myself and I bet wrong on it or I dropped out too soon, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the way – okay, here's how you sleep at night. First of all, you don't tell anyone, and you hope they've all forgotten that you had in the Kite Runner. I did not have in the Kite Runner, but just as an example – The thing is, you have to actually believe in it in order to do it well. Um, Like prep, for example, which I did when I was back at Random House before I got to Echo. That was a book that I was the only person who bid on it, and eight other people passed on it. But I was, you know, that was I was just the right age, and it spoke to me in a certain way. And I'd gone to, you know, like an all girls high school, and I just kind of, I don't know, it just rang a bell with me. And if it if it hadn't rung that same bell with you as the editor, you would not have done such you wouldn't have always sort of been pushing it out there at the front of the list. You know, so when you pass on a book because you just didn't see it, you just didn't get it. Um, you would have, you would have all the way through the process probably had that problem. You know, it's hard to proselytize about a book you don't love. You end up proselytizing about the thing you genuinely do love. And when you've got the book, you really do love and the book that you got talked into or sort of went against against your instincts, or I feel like editors make the worst bets when they try to do a book just like that thing over there that was a bestseller for whoever, you know? Don't try to do an imitation of the help just because Amy Einhorn just did the help and did it brilliantly, you know? Don't try to have a horse in every race where you just try to get yourself that mystery writer or that this or, hey, that gone girl was pretty good, let's do us one of those. You know, you have to really believe in it. So when you, when you you know, we all have books that we You know, the Yonawasi Riding Club is one that I was the underbidder for. Um, You know, so that's one that, you know, it's just out now. And I think about it all the time, like, wow, I wonder how that's going to do. And here it comes. And, oh, interesting what they did on the jacket, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and they're the books, you know, that you just didn't get at all, and you kind of scratch your head over them and think, boy, they did a great job with that. I would have been at sixes and sevens trying to figure out how to pitch it or talk about it or what even to make it look like. Um, so we've all we've all passed on stuff. Absolutely you, every editor in the business has.
0: So okay. So or
1: passed on stuff or just failed to. You know, we were the underbidder for the you know, Amy Chuas Tiger Mother book, and that was one where my boss and I looked at each other all the time, just going, God, we should have kept bidding. You know. We we raise our fist to the sky and say, Oh, we knew we loved that book and we just we didn't get to bid as high as he and I might have done if left completely to our own devices. But once you know, once the air gets thin, other people are weighing in on how many zeros are attached to to, to what's going on there. So he and I love to sort of say, We knew we were right about that one. Sure. But yeah. you know, there are many, many, many books out there that other people are doing beautifully that you know crown has done a brilliant job with um with the dinner which is a book that is not everybody's cup of tea and i think they you know they started pitching it as yeah yeah and you know the first time i saw it kind of called um you know sort of a thriller or compared to gone girl in some way i just went damn that is smart i would not have known how to do that the way they did it so well well
0: yeah that book you know listening to michael no, Go gonna, ahead, sorry. I was, I was just gonna say that book had a huge life over overseas before it got here. That's like it's Yeah, heavy.
1: yeah, exactly. But I thought that was gonna make it harder. I was just like, wow, that's not easy to pitch to all of America. The, you know, the big Dutch bestseller where the four odious people sit around dinner and talk about this <laughs> horrible thing that happens. Like <laughs> that was not an easy book to do to do as well as they did. So, you know, you can look sort of across the way and admire what other people are doing and realizing you might not have been able to do the, do the same thing. If you didn't have the passion for it, you know, there are people who, who did not do the sun to the same extent we did. And we had the fire in the belly for that book from day one. From so what, book, what book? It, the Philip Meyer, the sun. Oh, right. Okay. You know, where we were just sort of everybody who was reading that here just thought, man, we have got to do this book. It's going to be amazing.
0: So has there, so okay, yes, so has, all... has there ever been a book that you read in like manuscript where you were just like, this is an awful piece of shit. And then it goes on to become like number one on the New York Times bestseller. List.
1: <laughs> like, do you know what I'm saying? Like, is, okay. that, ever, is
0: that, have you ever been that wrong?
1: Uh, like, yeah, you know, but we're all that wrong. I tell myself all the time. Um, and how does a book turn into such a phenomenon as that? It's a lot of combinations. You know, It's there is there is luck and the stars aligning just right and, and a news cycle that decides to pick it up and do a story off the book page about this author who has some compelling story of how she typed it with one foot after the shark bit off the other leg. You know, the human interest story takes over or just the, the zeitgeist of the moment, and that is very hard to predict. There are books, I mean, when I edited Stephen King, it was a book that... Um, I was working with Peter Straub and Stephen King, and Peter Straub had written *The Talisman*. And for 20 years, people had been saying, "When are they going to team up again? When are they going to team up again?" And amazingly, they teamed up when I was the young editor who was who was taking care of Peter after his longtime, very esteemed editor had passed away. So I was just sitting in the sitting in the lucky seat there, um, and I remember sending a note to Peter and Steve saying, "Man, next week is pub date, and you know, 9:15." 1901, baby, get ready for it. Okay, so that book came out four days after 9/11. <laughs> that book, nobody wanted to talk about a horror novel. You know what I mean? Like that. That, and there are so many books that came out right in the wake of 9/11 where it was it, they were either just completely overlooked or there was just something in them to make it queasy enough. It was a depressing story, a sad story, an upsetting story, a something story where they just did not get the critical attention or the um, or the, the groundswell of readership that they would have had in a, in a, in a normal world. So, that's a very extreme example, but I, you know, sometimes a book comes out and some real life Amanda Knox story helps a book catch on fire. And sometimes a book comes out and it's, you know, the same way to Amanda Knox's book comes out and it knocks everybody else off the, off the page. The election year. I have told myself now, you know, two or three election cycles. Do not publish a book in the fall of an election year. Nobody will ever get on NPR. You know, nobody is paying attention to the fiction. That's a good, um that's a good so point. sometimes things can, you know, react in such a way that, that the stars definitely don't align. So those those number one best selling books that you had on your desk and you never would have envisioned that future for it, you you just never know what things happen. I mean, Edgar Sawtell was a number one bestseller because Oprah chose it. But it made it all the way up to number two by itself before that. And that was you know, that was just some amazing publicity all happening at the same time. But I remember even the review we were waiting for, the New York Times. So to get a daily New York Times, and we knew Janet Maslin was doing it. And we thought it was supposed to run on Monday, and then it didn't. And we kind of thought, oh no, have we lost our slot? We're not getting a daily. Let's hope some other stuff is is good. Um, and it ended up running on a Friday, which is sort of, to my mind, like a bigger art section day. And they put it on the front. So instead of having a Monday review, which I would have killed to have, we had this giant Friday above the fold on the cover of the art section. And then Ron Charles put it on the cover of the Washington Post book review, and that was on the Sunday before um and then a couple other national hits happened that day too, so sometimes you just you know and i Oprah how it made it to her and how it struck a nerve, and I think you know she's a dog person, I didn't know she was a dog person. Oh, that does yeah. not mean we should all go publish more dog books, you know you just but <laughs> you don't know what little bit of serendipity is going to happen to allow. Much more good fortune than you had envisioned, or to, you know, have something just feel like it missed the mark. When we published Billy Lynn, it was in early May, and we kind of realized that Mother's Day came along right after that. And Mother's Day has nothing to do with Billy Lynn. Why would that even affect Billy Lynn? And it felt like, you know what? There's kind of only one table left in the front of chain bookstores, um, and even independents, you know, there's there's less room there, the real estate is pretty limited um, particularly in chains where they're selling devices in so much of their floor space so there's kind of this one big table and it's all Mother's Day and Billy didn't have a place to go his first week he was on sale um, so, I don't know, the 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 just pure chaos theory of publishing never ceases to amaze me. You can think you're going to have everything lined up just so, and you still, until that book goes out there, you just don't know whether the kindling is going to ignite or just kind of smoke for a little while and and never feel like it really sparked.
0: Yeah, I mean, so okay, so that answers a lot of the questions I was going to ask you, but, you know, from an author's perspective, okay, let's say I'm an author, I write a book, uh, Mm -hmm. a a publisher buys the book, what should an author be looking for from the publisher? Like what are good signs that uh, the publisher really believes in it? And like, what are not so good signs? You know what I'm saying? Like,
1: gosh, you know, what's, what's interesting is the number of times I've seen a smaller book on the list bubble up through the sheer enthusiasm of people who were reading it. When we did Song of Achilles by Madeline Miller, and that was was a book I loved. This is sort of a retelling of part of the Iliad, and it's a love story um, between Achilles and Patroclus. And it was Awesome, and it was like the Peter Jackson version of the Iliad, where they're just the sea nymph and the centaur and the battle scene and the blah blah blah. It was so—I mean, you talk about a plot junkie. That one, that one got my heart racing. Um, and people in house started to read it early, and so things started to happen for her out of the blue. Like we gave her this media lunch, which means we invite. 40 of the reviewers and bloggers and media people um, that we can sort of wrap our arms around and we say come here to this restaurant, this Greek restaurant and meet our little debut author. We're unveiling somebody and we want you to get excited about it. And so they all came to lunch and she gave a little talk about the book and you know, people got excited. She was given quite an unveiling there. Now that is not something that we planned to do the day I first bid on that book. It was something that happened because our publicity director is like, I think, I think this is Warm it, feel like it's got it. And she's you know, she's a Latin teacher who worked for 10 years on this book and she looks like she's 14 years old. And how did she write this thing? And it's so bloody and, and martial and all these wonderful qualities. And and who is she? We're curious about it. And so that happened for it. And somebody else said, Man, people are reading it and they're loving it. Let's do a ton of bound galleys. Um, you know, we would have done X number, and he said, No, 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 let's just saturate with it, and we did twice as many. Those are things that all happened very organically because people were legitimately excited about it. So, you know, I would say what what should an author look for? I mean, you want um, you want to feel like the editor it, it really is genuinely excited about it and understands it, um, and and I guess wants to work on it. I guess that's what I would look for if I were an author. Somebody to just be thoroughly sort of engaged in the in the in the process of it. And after that, I just feel like I want to give some. You know, take heart to an author who does not feel like they're the million-dollar acquisition on the list because such good things can still happen. That happened, again, this is going way back when I was still um, at Random House, so 10 years ago. But when I published PrEP, I mean, that, was, that started off as a little book, and nobody else had bid on it, and we were going to make it happen. And the publicity department got incredibly excited about it and did – a press release where they used all of their high school photos on the bottom of it. And there were like four publicists who wanted to work on it. So they just all decided to work on it together like a joint project. And other editors came up to me like, how'd you get four publicists on this book? Nobody gets four publicists. And it happened completely organically because of the book. So I would say on your road to publication, take heart from these things that are happening and realize that this, this bubbling up effect, this, you know, Something new to tell you about is a is a very 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 good sign. Well, yeah. You get worried when that's not happening. Um, you know, I don't want to send up alarm bells of yes. Get <laughs> very worried. I mean, the thing about publishing is there are you know it's a it's a lot of hurry up and wait. You will be so intensely involved with your editor during the editing, and then the manuscript goes off to a copy editor, and it might not get back to you for eight whole weeks. Now, during that time, I promise you, your editor is working on that book. But you might, they might not need to talk to you every day to do all that stuff. Sending it out for blurbs and presenting it in-house and talking to people about it and sending it out to booksellers and deciding to write a letter to go in it and blah 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 blah. They're all sorts of completely invisible to the author and quite possibly invisible to the agent things that are happening all along the process even though You know, then that manuscript reaches the author's desk, and he goes through the the copy editing changes, and then the manuscript disappears again, and he doesn't see it for another eight weeks when it comes back, typeset. And then suddenly there's a flurry of activity about getting the bound galleys to people, um, or a flurry of activity planning, you know, bookseller dinners or something like that. But I know it can feel like extremely long periods when nobody is paying attention.
0: Sure. Sure. But
1: there's a lot going on, and it's just you know going on in here, and it's like the it's like the internal combustion engine is having to work. Um, that you can't see beneath the hood doesn't mean it's not it's not happening. But I don't know. It's a good idea to stay. You know, know what you're going to do yourself, and whether that's build a website or learn how to Facebook and tweet and blah 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 or you know, if you if you did a small book tour once, save all of the contact names of everybody you know, and send notes to those booksellers saying your book is coming out, or send an email or something like that. You can you can sort of you can think of things to do yourself as well during those kind of long periods when you know something is happening, but they they aren't involving you in in every step.
0: Okay, so, just, you
1: know,
0: yeah, no, I mean, it all, I mean, it all makes, I just, I think the thing that keeps resonating in my mind is that you just can't fake enthusiasm. That's really the whole key. It's word of mouth, whether yeah. it's word of mouth in, inside the publishing house or it's word of mouth on the yep. streets. Like, that's the whole shoot and match. And then, uh, you know, uh, aside from that, just like the, the cosmic stuff that you were talking about where the stars either align or don't that nobody quite right. understands. <laughs> Uh-huh. You
1: know, and it's—I mean—and things can go wrong all the way along. Like you know, getting that cover right—that can sometimes be a very frustrating process. That can get everybody feeling really scared if they can't get it right. It's all going to be a disaster. You know, sometimes that thing is right the first time you ever, as an author, do you ever see anything? And sometimes it takes thirty tries to get to something. So, I would say most importantly don't lose heart over the parts that that feel like it's not all just you know happening on on greased wheels it's it's all it's, sometimes the process is a little clankier than others but you know, you're trying to get somewhere. And we have thrown covers away. Billy Lynn, we threw a cover away. We threw a second cover away before it went to print, like the 11 o'clock the night before that thing went to press, and got another cover on it. And I still don't think we had the right hardcover jacket on it. And I think our paperback jacket is brilliant, but that never would have worked on a hardcover. So there are a lot of moving parts. And don't freak out over one of them. Okay. Because sometimes a lot of the other ones are, are working well, and everybody wants it to be right when it needs to go out there in the world.
0: So, uh, But yeah, it's
1: word of mouth. It's genuine word of mouth. You can't make it happen when it's not happening. You cannot just put the paddles on the chest and insist that people get excited about something and love something and talk about it. You can try to make them talk about it at 10 different intervals, but it when it happens, it really feels like it's genuinely, you know, firing up on its own.
0: Right, right. And I think like you know, especially with like the internet and whatnot and the, the different modes of communication and community yeah. building that authors have. I think sometimes like the, all that stuff's fine and good. And I learned this the hard way. I think myself is that all that stuff's fine and good, but, um, you can do all of that in the world that you want. But if the book itself isn't getting people super excited, yeah. there's you, there's, no matter how much you do, you could work 24 hours a day right. getting the work. It's not going to, it's not going to happen. It has to happen on its own. Like you said.
1: Right, so, and I tell you, public, you know, editors and publishers, like we are, we totally are believing in all those books that we're looking at. Like we are going to make it happen, and we are as puzzled sometimes as 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 an author might be about what, what we had. Everything felt like it was just going to explode, and why did it not? And it is, it is as mystifying to us sometimes as as anyone else. It feel it feels like something's happening, and it just doesn't quite catch. And again. Things are so spread out now. Like there isn't one review that can just make it happen. There's not one thing that just crowns you and right. you're off and running. Career is made. Book is a bestseller. Everybody put your feet up. You know, you can, you can <laughs> get all the reviews and still not see sales happening. You know, but think about Billy Lynn and sales were slow and steady, slow and steady, slow and steady, slow and steady, and they hit a saturation point. And that's still really nice to see happen.
0: Sure. So it sounds like you're optimistic. Like it sounds like I mean you seem like an optimistic person just in terms of your energy, but um when it, it comes to publishing there's so much gloom and doom. So like, you know, just final question, like are you, do you feel good is the mood at echo good or are you guys are you guys putting on a brave face and then like you know you have, you, you said, you, said, you, said you, you you said you have you said you have bourbon in your office so who knows what's going on
1: right we're relying heavily on substances but maintaining a, a positive outlook um i would say we do feel optimistic about it and again we've you know we we concentrate on 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 the book and and i don't care if people read a book or or read it electronically i I am delighted when people are reading the book, period. And, you know, get to it any way you need to get to it. I think that has created huge change in the whole industry. And it would break my heart to see a single bookstore ever go out of business because they are the backbone of how authors get heard about. It's very easy to go by somebody that you read, you know, every time they put out a book. It is very hard to go discover who who you should be reading. And it's and without the the bookstores who take that interest and host those authors say, come on out here to Kansas city and we will send out that newsletter to all of our customers and tell them to come on in here. And they know they can rely on us to have interesting, um, authors coming in and a night well spent here I just don't know what would happen with all the books I publish if there if there wasn't that network of spreading the word because again it's genuine word of mouth of people getting excited about it and people telling somebody else to read it that's what cuts through all the white noise a person you believe and that person can be a reviewer it can be Oprah Winfrey, it can be your next-door neighbor, it can be your dog walker, it can be anybody that you have just come to trust and be interested in their opinion, your favorite blogger, what have you. Um, That's what cuts through all the noise because there are a lot of books getting published every year. And when I go on vacation and I think, oh, I finally am not going to read for work, what am I going to read? I get overwhelmed with the like, boy, I have that one on my list and that one on my list and that one on my list and I don't even know how to narrow it down. A a well-placed word by somebody as I'm taking the elevator out, Going on vacation. What are you reading? I don't know. What should I read? And they tell me to read *The Orphan Master's Son*. Boom! it's going in the bag. Um, so I think the the bookstores do so much work in in getting the lesser known people out there and building those careers so you can publish three good books and have your fourth go wild and have everybody in America reading it um, but I feel like get to that book any way you can and and we will we will I think we always feel like we will find the readers out there it is definitely changing how we do it from the the presence and persuasiveness of reviews down to are people buying books on their phone or are they walking into a store where they're talking to a person? It's throwing us all for a loop. But as long as people keep reading, and I feel like they're reading as much as they ever have, you know, they're gonna they're gonna get to Billy Lynn one way or another. I hope.
0: Well, it's been so uh, fascinating and so great talking with you. I really appreciate you taking the time, and uh, you know, I wish you the best of luck, and I look forward to seeing what you and your authors turn out. Uh, here in the year
1: to come. Well, well, thank you so much for hosting me. This, is, this has been a treat for me to get to talk about all these books and to find a fellow Louisiana person. It's not a native, somebody with roots. And sure. I really, I've enjoyed it so much. So thank you so much for having me.
0: Okay, guys, there you go. That is Lee Boudreaux. Go get a book by one of her authors. Read uh, Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk if you haven't done that yet. Go get Tampa, the new one from Alyssa Nutting. Uh, the list goes on. It's a long list. The Sisters Brothers by Patrick DeWitt, uh, Edgar sawtell you know, it's a—it's an impressive list. And uh, be sure to check out Echo Press online. It's an imprint of HarperCollins, and the web address is fairly lengthy, so the easiest thing to do is just Google it. Echo Press, E-C-C-O. Thanks to Kill Rockstars for all the good music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Don't forget to get the app, the free official Other People app, It's the best way to listen to this program. New episodes automatically upload to the app. You can download episodes to listen to offline. You can favorite your favorite episodes, and uh, you can access the full archives and premium content as well all via the app. So please go get that. It's free. Uh, Thanks again for the letters. And the email address, once again, if you want to write to me, is letters at otherpeoplepod.com. Don't forget to use your words. Don't assault people. And try to be nice to people with clipboards. It's such such thankless work, soliciting. I used to be a telemarketer uh, back in college. That was my job in college. Wearing a headset and uh, asking alumni for donations. And just getting rejected. Which is actually probably pretty good uh, preparation for my writing life. And, uh, I remember on like more than one occasion calling someone, uh, or calling their home and they had just recently died. That's never pleasant. Please remember that Montaigne frequently quotes Plutarch in his work with absolutely zero attribution and that Anthony Trollope wrote seven pages a day, seven days a week. That's it for now. Thanks for being here. Thanks again to Lee Boudreau for, uh, taking the time to talk. I'll be back again in just a few days with another conversation. With another book person So uh, Have a nice day Have a nice 4th of July And uh I don't know what am I going to do Maybe I'll take this weekend off Maybe there's no podcast on Sunday Since uh, everyone's going to be out of town I don't know Or maybe I'll do one Am I allowed to take a day off Do I have your permission (laughs)